every time someone says they work on fish, I say, do you fish? Do you like fishing? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to The More You Look, your behind-the-scenes journey into museum collections, research, exhibition, and public programming from Fairbanks, Alaska. I'm Roger Topp, Director of Exhibits, Design, and Digital Media at the UA Museum of the North, and host for today's episode. As of late November 2023, UAMN has more than two dozen university graduate and undergraduate students working with and within the museum collections. That's two dozen not including the students that work for the exhibits, operations, visitor services, and education departments. So I want to begin to dedicate some time, some episodes, to look at this wealth of student research. And this week we have Maggie Harrings, master's student in fisheries, and Andreas Lopez, Museum Curator of Fishers and UAF Associate Professor at the College of Fisheries and Ocean Sciences. They sat with me to talk about Maggie's research into Chinook salmon and environmental DNA. My name is Maggie Harrings. I'm a, a second year graduate student um, in the College of Fisheries and Ocean Sciences here at UAF. Um, I am originally from Wisconsin. I've spent uh, the last 12 years kind of touring around out west doing um, different fisheries uh, projects and um, diving into other fields as well and have since found my way to Alaska and have been here for about seven years and joined the environmental DNA team here at UAF uh, a couple years ago and um, here we are now. <laughs> and I'm Andres Lopez. I'm curator of fishes at the Museum, and I'm also an associate professor in the Department of Fisheries in the College of Fish and Ocean Sciences. I've been in Alaska for 18 years now, something like that, 15 years. Um, yeah, and I always loved working on fish research, fish biology, fish diversity, and with an emphasis on molecular tools to learn about fish biology and fish diversity. So. There are different types of fish biologists, and there are fish ecologists tend to fish a lot and enjoy fishing. Evolutionary biologists tend not to, especially ichthyologists, folks that work on fish taxonomy and fish systematics, are not commonly as avid fishermen as your regular fish biologist. So, but are you Maggie. I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I grew up fishing um, quite a bit with my family back home and in northern Minnesota, and so it's kind of stayed stayed with me. Um, but up here, I uh, I found that I I don't I don't fish as much. I've I've found that I you know I, I've lead more toward fish as, as a um, source of food now, and instead of uh, I've kind of moved away from catch and release. So it's I don't fish as, as much anymore. There you go. Yeah. Okay, let's get into what your research is all about. Um, you mentioned the eDNA team here at UAF, so maybe in the, on the larger scale, talk, talk to us about what eDNA is and uh, just what's happening here at the university, and then we'll get down to the specifics of what you're working on. Sure. Um, so environmental DNA is what eDNA stands for. Um, I think there, uh, I've heard a couple different versions of that. Some people think it stands for... Um, Electronic uh, DNA. Electronic DNA, <laughs> yes. Definitely not that. Yeah. <laughs> this is real, uh, real DNA in the wild. Um, and, uh, you know, for instance, if, if I were to take my finger here and place it on the table in front of me and then remove my finger, I've left DNA on the surface. 
And I like to explain that, especially to kids. I think it translates really well. Um, the same thing with animals in the wild, right? So for instance, you think about salmon, when they're swimming through the water, they're physically move, moving, their tails, you know, um, uh, moving around and, and there's, there's DNA shedding, right, through that process. Um, same goes for, you know, reproductive processes, eDNA, uh, or DNA sh shed into the environment through, um, through those processes. Um, fecal matter is another source of environmental DNA. Um, really, really any way for animals to shed tissue into their environment. There is a growing number of people, both at UAF and everywhere in the world, interested in using different ways of measuring environmental DNA to learn things about nature. And here at UAF, we have at least three or four labs that are getting involved in environmental DNA. The, the particular team that we're talking about here includes uh, Jessica Glass, who's another professor in, in the Department of Fisheries, Eric Shane, who is a, a professor in, um, in IARC. So, the team is a, it's a nebulous configuration that keeps growing. More and more people are interested in, in using this tool to ask different sorts of questions in fish ecology, fish biology. Salmon, yeah. Um, so obviously, uh, you know, I, I grew up in, in central Wisconsin, not really something that we had there. Um, but when I moved out west, I, um, I really started to to dive into kind of the world of, of salmon. Um, and I, I realized the, you know, several years ago even, you know, the, the decline they were having out there in, in abundance. So when I moved up here, um, to some extent, depending on where you're living, some of the rivers up here, I kind of feel like are still, you know, they're still in pretty good shape. Um, unfortunately, the system that we're focusing on is the Yukon River Basin. Um, and, you know, if, if you're living in Alaska, uh, most people are pretty aware of the declines that um, that system's been experiencing over the last several years, particularly in the last couple. Um, and so right now we are looking at um, Chinook and Chum, which are unfortunately doing particularly poorly right now in the Yukon. Um, and we are using, so we, we we're working with a couple different agencies, um, Fish and Game, Fish and Wildlife Service, um, as well as Tana and the Chiefs Conference. Um, and all of these different uh, agencies and, and organizations are out there every summer monitoring salmon runs. So um, we've partnered with them. Um, they, uh, in combination between the three organizations, they're monitoring salmon on five different rivers that were um, collecting eDNA um, uh, at their sites from. So, so they have their technicians that go out in the field um, they're counting, they're living out there at these weirs or sonar sites. Um, they're counting salmon every day. Um, what they were doing as well in 2021 and 2022 for us were taking um, environmental DNA samples every morning. Um, and really all that means is they're filtering water. Um, and so they, by the end of the sampling event, they end up with a couple different filters that in theory have... Um, any kind of DNA or as well as any other sediment or particles in the water that they filtered um, and were able to quantify the amount of DNA on those filters. Um, the, and then in turn, so now, you know, we have these eDNA samples and then we have these known salmon counts at the same locations, right? 
And so in turn, very, very simply put, <laughs> we can do a bunch of fancy statistics and modeling um, to say, okay, if we have, you know, for instance, and these are very theoretical numbers, but if we, for instance, have, we find, um, you know, uh, 30 DNA, copies of DNA on one filter, and that happens to consistently correspond with maybe um, 100 fish passing, right? You're able to make that correlation um, and so, and this has been done a couple other areas throughout the state as well. And so you can actually use the, um, environmental DNA or the copy number in that filter as kind of a proxy for the daily salmon count. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And I've been to your web, I've been to your website <laughs> sure. and you, you mentioned the age of DNA in the water. Yeah. So you, you kind of have an idea of that. You have a regular sampling at a particular location once a day. And then you yep. have multiple sites along the river. And from that, you can filter out material coming downstream. Yeah, so that's actually the second chapter of my, my work, I think, is what you're getting at. So um, uh, this other project that we're working on is on the Chena. Um, and we've, yep, just like you said, we've collected um, three different times throughout the summer. Last year, we collected eDNA samples um, with the intent of kind of collecting samples before the salmon came during the peak of the run and then after. Um, and we're gonna be looking at um, how DNA concentrations change throughout the period of, of um, the salmon run. Um, uh, maybe, you know, uh, make observations based on um, DNA, potentially DNA transport rates, DNA degradation, things like that. Um, because there's a lot of different things that affect uh, how long eDNA can stay or remain in a system. Um, you know, for instance, it can get hung up in vegetation. It can adhere to biofilm. Um, it can get resuspended, you know, in a really turbulent area. It can get resuspended. Um, and then things like, you know, environmental conditions, temp water temperature, um, all those things can affect how long um, DNA is uh, present or at least detectable in your system. So. And I haven't heard much about eDNA on the front page of the newspaper, right? But what I have heard recently, of course, is a study of COVID, using, measuring COVID effluent from cities and that, and that's mm -hmm. a very similar process to this? Yeah, exactly the same process, yeah. yeah. So what you're talking about is using sampling sewage and counting how many particles of COVID genomes are there. And there's a very clear correlation between that measurement and the prevalence of COVID in a given region, the, the catchment, whatever that sewage system is draining. So it's the technology that Maggie's using in her research is identical. There are obviously specific reagents that tell us things about Chinook DNA or CHUM DNA, but in every other respect is the same approach, the same tools in the lab. Of course, it's very, very small amounts of the DNA in the water. <laughs> so you use a technique, which I believe is qPCR, yeah, to yep. uh, amplify the signal. So we can talk a bit about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and for those listening, qPCR uh, just stands for quantitative PCR. So we're quantifying, we're using PCR, and we're quantifying the amount of DNA in our samples. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Um, like I mentioned before, you know, Yukon River salmon aren't doing so well. Um, and so this was uh, kind of a, a pilot project per se to, um, to look at, you know, how well we're able to um, detect DNA in systems that don't, may not have a lot of DNA, um, just simply due to the fact that there aren't a lot of fish. So qPCR is quantitative polymerase chain reaction. Um, and people are probably familiar because one of the tests that people would get 
if they thought they had COVID, would be a PCR test. So it's the same PCR, the same that's polymerase. That's the home kit, but that would be able to lab. That's when you go to a lab and they, and they take a sample and then they run the exact same thing that Maggie's doing with water samples. They did it with your saliva sample. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So polymerase chain reaction, and the, the value there is that you are taking advantage of something that happens in all your tissues, all your cells. When, when a cell has to divide, it has to copy the full genome so that there's two versions of it to, for the daughter cells to inherit. So there's a synthesis of genomes, of, of DNA sequences. The polymerase chain reaction captures that biological process that takes place in your cells and puts it in a test tube and speeds it up so that you have this chain reaction where you make a copy and then the products of that copy get copied themselves and again and again through a chain reaction. And very quickly you can go from having a single copy of your target Chinook DNA molecule to having billions in, in your little test tube. And, and the reason we need to do that is because there are no cheap instruments that would allow you to, to detect a single copy of DNA. But it's very easy to detect tens and thousands of copies of DNA. So we need to have that multiplication step before doing the detection. And the pre-trick is figuring out what reagent multiplies that particular part of our genome. Yeah. So you, so you get salmon multiplied and not grayling. Yes, exactly. And I think, um, you know, that that's something that's not always very well understood and that's that really is key to this whole project. Um, the kind of the, the mixture of different reagents that we use, it's called an assay. Um, you could think of it as kind of a recipe, right? And this recipe is really specific to the single species that you're after. So, you, so in other words, um, a well-designed assay or a well-designed kind of recipe, if you will, um, should not, you're not going to be getting any data that's reflective of any other species. The results are only um, representative of the species that you're after. But that's a great question. Yeah. <laughs>
really exciting. Um, but what that also means is there seems to be, you know, um, a broadening of, you know, different types of applications every day, right? It's, it's people are finding new ways to use eDNA to quantify or, you know, do presence non-detection, um, biodiversity assessments, um, all those certain different types of studies. So um, in Alaska, uh, there's potential uh, to use eDNA not just in the way that we're using it, right? Um, this is all very theoretical, but it's, it's quite possible that it might be able to be used, for instance, when um, biologists are grounded when they're trying to go out and do an aerial survey and the weather's too poor. They, there is a possibility that, um, you know, maybe in turn they could, uh, you know, contract someone um, in a uh, more remote community and that person could go out during days when they're not able to fly and collect eDNA samples in, instead. Um, again, these are things that we haven't gotten to the point of um, testing or anything like that. Um, That's how but new the future it is. is right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so people are thinking yeah. that it may be a, a new tool that has some advantages over existing tools, like Maggie was saying, to to show that there's a given species in a given location. You have to go there and catch it, and that takes time logistically in Alaska. It tends to be very challenging, and because it's challenging, it's expensive. So the thought is that maybe eDNA-based approaches can be cheaper and easier to implement more broadly. Because if it if you don't need to be at a, a remote site for as long as it takes to run your net through the water until you catch that fish, if if all you need to do is land or maybe send a, a drone to collect a little bit of water and bring it back, then it could be made a lot, the, the surveys and the monitoring of um, these different species can be done a lot more cheaply. So we're hoping to show that based on, in this particular study, we're hoping to show that this is a, a great new tool that makes things cheaper, easier, or maybe just add extra eyes on the situation. And then is the case with every new technology that the more uses you find for it, the more people using it, whether it's tracking viruses or salmon or who knows what other uses, um, it will become cheaper to do the, to do the, um, the lab work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the way that we, um, the way that we were running this project is, you know, uh, filters are collected during the summer and then um, in the winter months, um, they're processed in the lab here. Um, you know, what would be great in the future <laughs> with, with, you know, more research and, and whatnot is um, if communities, I, there's, there's right, right now there's um, these, and I haven't played around with them yet, so maybe don't include, I don't know, but there's yeah. these devices well. that you can take out into the field and run Q, uh, QPCR, uh, I believe, right there in the field with you. So there would be much less of a delay um, in receiving those results from us versus if you're able to do that in the field. Like Maggie said, this is, a relatively new technology, it's about 12 years old. So, so in 2008, yeah. there was a group that decided to see if they could find Asian carp invading Midwestern drainages or dispersing across Midwestern drainages. This is an introduced species that has some ecological impact. And they showed that you could look at DNA in the water and find the species. So, so that that is pretty much the birth of eDNA as a 
monitoring tool for animals. People before, you know, before that, people knew that you could look at the DNA in the water to look at the bacteria that were there. But this was kind of the, the eureka moment where, well, if there is DNA in the water and we can somehow pull it out and detect it, we can learn things about the organisms that are living in that environment. And I'm guessing the bacteria were there in much higher numbers, and so it was maybe easier to spot them. Maybe. <laughs> but I, lo I yeah. love the idea that you could, you could test a drainage regularly and almost get an idea of what's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I, I'll add to that, too, is um, something that, I, that I'm particularly interested, maybe after grad school and looking more into, is um, you know, there's a lot of, Alaska is a massive state, obviously. There's, there are tons of tributaries to main stem rivers um, that bring in, you know, or foster, you know, great spawning habitat for salmon um, that are never, mo have never been monitored before, right? And so one thing that I think would be really cool is to go out into some of these tributaries, use e environmental DNA to track relative changes in some of these salmon runs in these tributaries that have never been studied before. Um, you wouldn't necessarily be able to get, you know, salmon counts per se, but you could, you could, you might be able to get in theory to a point where you can say, okay, this was probably a good year, or this year, ooh, not so great. Um, so one presence and two relative year-to-year -year change. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> and that's the the big selling point with Maggie's study, mm -hmm. not just yeah, knowing that the Chinook are coming through, but getting a sense of how many are there and whether it's a bigger pulse of spawning fish versus one year versus the next or the timing of the arrival. Mm -hmm. the, that's really the, the key new insight that Maggie's work will generate. Mm -hmm. We know, we as in humanity knows that eDNA is there, that you can detect it, that you can, that it makes sense, the species you detect are the species that should live in that river. But now the, the cool extension is to figure out if there's a quantitative relationship between the number of individual fish and the amount of eDNA. Because if, if that relation doesn't exist, then it's still a useful tool for yeah. detecting and surveying biodiversity, but it's not a counting tool. Right. And hopefully we'll find that it is a counting it tool. It feels like it could be, but you just got to find out. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mentioned, I think I mentioned earlier too that this has been done um, fairly successfully in a couple areas of Alaska. Um, those systems in particular were uh, smaller in size and river volume, um, and they had a higher um, density of salmon. And so, you know, just hearing those two like things combined, uh, you start to think, okay, there's probably a lot more DNA. Right, it's probably a lot easier to capture DNA in those systems. Um, so it's, I guess it isn't entirely surprising that you know they those researchers were um, had successful projects, right? Um, and so it'll be interesting to see. Um, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what we find um, with our system, and I'm excited. Okay, so you're yeah. in a master's program here at yeah. UAF. Yeah. So where are you in the, in, your, in your project? Most of our uh, 
the processing involved with the filters themselves and the DNA extractions um, are done. So we're moving on to um, the step where we're actually starting to quantify environmental DNA. What I'm finding is that during the, the very, very beginning of, for instance, the Chamran and the China, um, I'm not necessarily, I'm finding that there isn't necessarily enough DNA um, for us to, uh, without going into too much detail, for us to use those data. Um, we have had samples, though, during um, more toward the peak of the run that are producing results that we would be able to use. So, Pure science, the technology of doing this research, is everything being done with it is valuable to kind of advance this part of the science. Mm -hmm. And then there's the extra hope that it is applicable and we can learn Right, get, and, get a tool to use in Alaska. In the and I think the goal is to ground truth the technology in a study. And if it works, then the, the, the work of deploying it and using it regularly on different locations for different Chinook runs falls to the folks that are most closely tied to that particular run, right? So it, it stops being the job of the university or the museum to do once we show that, okay, if you follow these steps, you can quantify the size of your run using this eDNA approach. Mm -hmm. That's where we step back. And if folks want to just implement a routine monitoring study, they can do it outside of, of our participation. Right. And I'll add on to that too. I think another kind of cool aspect of this project is um, the fact that the the folks, the the technicians, the fisheries technicians that were hired by the agencies and organizations that we partnered with, um, a lot of them were in the grand scheme, like relatively quite young. Um, you know, think eighteen to twenty two range on average. And um, and the reason I bring that up is because it means that they ha they really haven't had a lot of training, if any, right, in environmental um, DNA sampling techniques. Um, and so we were able to come in, provide a couple couple hours of in depth. Uh, training on environmental DNA sampling and proper techniques and, and whatnot, avoiding contamination, et cetera. Um, and they were able to you know, successfully go out into the field and collect daily samples for several months at a time. Um, and that isn't necessarily something that applies to every sampling technique out there in fisheries, right? Um, so I, I think that that's a really, it's, it's you know, the some of the maybe science, some, some folks might get a little bit intimidated by like maybe some of the, you know, Molecular, bio, you know, molecular biology like terms and phrases surrounding um, this technique, but but the the process of actually filtering in the in the field is very easy, um, which is I think makes it um, a pretty powerful uh, technique to use. So it, it sounds on the one hand that you know the process would be pretty delicate in a matter of collecting the material, but on the other hand, when you talk about contamination, um, one I'm asking. Is there a control for that? But secondly, mm -hmm. what is the likelihood that someone's going to contaminate with too much king salmon? Mm. That's a good <laughs> question. Are you asking, so you're saying on years well, when there's a lot I'm, of I'm salmon. out in the field and I know oh, nothing yeah. about this, okay, but I have okay. this, this job to collect some yep. water. Yep. What, if I put some human DNA in there, is that going to matter? Or if I put my lunch in there, is that going to be more of a problem if it was king salmon? It depends on what you had <laughs> for lunch, yeah. <laughs> You have king. Then You're not allowed to bring salmon <laughs> to the field with you. So a little, um. a little side story. I was recently in a field experience with a team that was collecting eDNA samples, and as part of their data sheet that went along with each sample that was collected, they had to write down what fish they had eaten for lunch. 
so that it was clear that if that fish showed up in the result, then it made sense, right? So is that part of the control too? You can control for that, like just note it yeah, so that you have yeah. that information. And if some the result is unexpected, then you have a possible source of explanation. <laughs> yeah, and and when you ask about controls too, or or field blanks is what we call them, um, they. Uh, d it depends on kind of your your sampling scheme, but um, we did uh, ask the technicians to every every few days um, they would collect their two replicates. So their two they they collect their two filters, eDNA filters, and then at the very end of that process, they would they would collect a third filter where they'd filter just distilled in theory, uh, uncontaminated water. And so that's kind of a check for us in the lab when we analyze that that lab or that field blank to say, okay, this in theory should not have any DNA in it. But if it does, <laughs> then there, there might be a bit of an issue. Um, and there's, there's ways to kind of determine, you know, whether or not it uh, may have been isolated just to that, that sample or if there was a bigger issue. So, yeah. And a, another thing to think about specifically with this project, many of the technicians that were in the field collecting samples mm -hmm. were at weirs where fish were being counted and handled. So if the technician were not, was not careful and they were handling fish Chinook that day, the day that they filter water, it's possible to introduce contamination. And that's mm -hmm. why a well-designed environmental DNA survey includes contamination controls at every step of the process, not just in the field, like Maggie described, having blanks that are collected in the field using the same setup, everything the same except the source of the sample is something you know should not have any any river DNA. Mm -hmm. But then when those samples get to the lab, we introduce blanks at every step. The idea is to track. If we, at the end, end up with results that make no sense whatsoever, hopefully we can track it down to a specific point in the process where some mistake took place and DNA that wasn't supposed to be there ended up where, with our samples. Thank you for mentioning weirs again for like the third time because I keep on envisioning you some on a gravel bar somewhere with no one else inside getting this pure <laughs> sample out of a river. And of course, Yukon's pretty large. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing a nice little stream and the river runs through it and that. No, this is, yeah, you, 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 the tests are being done where there are people, there are activities happening, they're near villages, settlements, so, yeah. Well, yeah. the key thing is that these samples come from, the, the, Maggie's work is gonna depend on having eyes on fish, that's one count, and then the count of amount of DNA. And if the two things move up and down with each other, we're super happy and we report great success and fun papers. If they don't dance with each other, <laughs> then we show that in, under some situations, like this particular site, the tool is not very sensitive. So those are possible outcomes. So in terms of, in terms of this recent or other research within the museum, um, we have quite extensive collections here within the building. So I'm interested in knowing how much our collections have benefited this research and vice versa. Sure, yeah. Um, so I'll start kind of again, kind of at the beginning, but when the samples come into the lab, um, we 
cut the filters in half and one half of the filter um, remains, uh, gets set aside for, for research purposes for my project. Um, the other half of the filter gets archived um, and ultimately it will be stored uh, with a fancy barcode um, that, you know, someone can look up in the future if they need, um, if they say, oh, you know, I, I'm really interested in learning more about uh, what may or may not have been in the Salter River in 2021. They can um, come to the museum, um, talk with folks here, and they can get connected with some of these um, filter halves that came directly from this project. Um, and this isn't necessarily, uh, you know, specific to my project. This applies to any, you know, any eDNA um, uh, filters stored for, from other projects as well. Um, and kind of the, the unique thing is that these filters don't just have salmon DNA on them, right? So there's DNA from anything in, in theory, <laughs> anything near the, where the sampling location was, um, there will be DNA there uh, on those filters from any species in the, in the water. And so, um, you know, someone, for instance, looking at invertebrates could come in and use this filter, not just for salmon, but to look at, um, you know, maybe invertebrate presence absence or something like that. We were also able to use um, uh, some specimens from the museum collections to, um, uh, you know, when we were talking about, you know, how specific is, is our mixture or our recipe, right, to um, the salmon that we're looking at. We were able to run what's called a specificity test, um, and it basically just says, is our, is our recipe specific only to the species that we want it to be, right? Um, and so we were able to use some specimens from the museum um, to test for that. So we were able to pull specimens uh, from the museum um, that uh, corresponded to um, species found in our study rivers um, and test whether or not our uh, recipe, if you will, um, were detecting DNA from those species as well. Um, luckily, we found very little uh, what's called cross amplification where you have DNA that amplifies from a species that you don't want. <laughs> um, and so our, our recipe, if you will, um, uh, you know, it seems to be working very well, um, is really only targeting the species that we are after. So oftentimes when I'm presenting at conferences, the same question comes up from folks and they're curious about what happens if you have um, let's say, theoretically, you go out to a stream and um, without knowing it, you're collecting an eDNA sample looking for Chinook, but there just aren't any in the system, right? Um, their question is always, well, what if a bird came along, for instance, and pooped up river <laughs> and the bird had eaten a Chinook and now you're sampling DNA from that, that fecal matter? Um, and, and I guess my, my response is that they, which is a good concern to have. I think that's a very valid uh, question. Um, so, so with eDNA or environmental DNA, there's something, and qPCR, there's something called a limit of detection. And the, as well as limit of quantification. These are just different thresholds that say, okay, for instance, you need X number of uh, molecules of DNA in your sample before you can legitimately actually detect, say, yes, I can 100%, you know, I can confirm that I have DNA um, from this one species. And then one level up would be the limit of quantification. Okay, I need even more DNA in my sample to say, yes, I can adequately quantify the amount of DNA in that sample. Um, and so uh, the more I read about this, um, 
it, it just does not seem likely that you're ever going to get enough DNA from a fecal sample that if you even happen to capture in your filter floating downstream, there's very low chance of there being enough DNA in that sample for you to detect it um, above your limit of quantification. The other way of thinking about the same idea is that we are hoping that this approach captures the average of what's happening in that river. So the mixture of all the contributors and little things like that happen, mm -hmm. little weird events like a Chinook got injured and lost a fin and, or it's bleeding all over the place. We're hoping that those little bumps in DNA concentrations will not drive the signal. Right. So if the outliers don't. So if this yeah. technique is so sensitive that some random event throws the signal on, off and off, off and on, what Maggie will see in, instead of these trends of DNA concentrations moving with the pulse of fish moving, she'll just see noise, right? Like one day there's a million copies, and the other day there's zero, and then two minutes later there's a million again. And if that's what we see, just a very noisy line over time that has no relationship with the known number of fish that move through that spot in the river, then we'll throw the technique away as this doesn't work in this river. We know it works in other places yeah. for other species, but if, if that line is just noise, then it is noise and there's nothing to do about it. But if the line has nice behaviors, then we don't care about the fact that there's possible mm -hmm. sources of variation because we see that that variation gets controlled by the dynamics of the river, mixing everything and making everything a nice little mm -hmm. low, you know, some volume of DNA that is matching the amount of the source of the DNA. Other juvenile fish in the system too, things like that oh, could yeah. all be. Those yeah. are really cool questions. One, one of the next steps in eDNA applications in these kinds of settings is at some point those fish are going to move past the sampling site, find their spawning beds, and spawn. And they're going to be releasing gametes, and they're going to be falling apart, and there's going to be all kinds of things happening. And folks are already developing specialized assays that will, will give you a, a little flag that says spawning is happening now. Because the signal not just changes in intensity, but you could for example, if the species you're interested in has sex determination genes and or some other marker that is more prevalent in sperm, for example, then you could develop one of these recipes that very specifically says something is weird here. Right. <laughs> the signature is changing and it's indicative of the presence of a lot of gametes in the water. So in which case, no longer can't count fish anymore. Because <laughs> you get a lot of, of a huge exactly down the stream. Yeah. 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 But it yeah. could tell you, okay, this is the date of spawning in this river, which is important information for fish biology, especially now that we're thinking about climate change and how changing environmental regimes are altering the biology of species. One of the things that folks really want to know is whether that has an effect on the timing of key events in life history, spawning being one of them and all of these other things. So 
There's other ways. There's so many ways in which eDNA can be deployed to ask questions that are different from, from the questions that Maggie's asking. You know, I think moving forward, uh, I uh, am hoping to stick around in either Alaska or uh, spend some additional time down in Idaho. Um, uh, kind of regardless of, of where I end up, I'm hoping to obviously remain in fisheries and, and um, secure a position with uh, hopefully the federal government, which would be great. Um, and uh, yeah, also make sure that I make some time for some fun things like pack rafting and uh, rafting and split boarding and all, all those classic Alaska activities. So rivers, so. rivers are key. Rivers are key. Rivers have always been a huge player in uh, my my upbringing as well and, and remain, um, remain a very, very important um, kind of aspect in my work life and personal. Um, and so it's the work I'm doing I think is, is extra meaningful because of that. I wish you luck with that because I was always thought I'd be involved with coast coastlines. <laughs> here you are. Failed miserably for thirty Middle years. The, <laughs> the most important question: Have you fallen in love with molecular biology? This That's is a, a question come from from your is advisor, who defense? is very invested in molecular biology. <laughs> your answers here will be judged. And will judge see. you very harshly. <laughs> If the answer is incorrect. I could see myself um, sticking with environmental DNA. Mm. Wow, that's a very neutral, <laughs> not in love with molecular biology. She also likes fish. Yeah, like fish that's okay. Yeah, I guess. Well, thank you both for, for, for sticking with us for uh, this last hour. Fascinating. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, see you around. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Roger. Thank you to Maggie and Andreas for sharing their stories and thoughts on this ongoing research. The museum and the University of Alaska could not conduct this work and provide these opportunities to students without public and private sector partnerships and without individual gifts and state and national funding. Be sure to explore the museum's website for insights into all 10 of the museum's research collections and the vast and all-encompassing work of faculty, staff, and student researchers. Just as I did, you too can visit Maggie's Salmon eDNA Project website. Find it and learn more. We put the link in the show notes. The More You Look is a production of the UA Museum of the North on the campus of the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the ancestral lands of the Dene people of the Lower Tanana River. UAMN illuminates the natural history and cultural heritage of Alaska and the North through collections, research, education, and partnerships, and by creating a singular museum experience that honors diverse knowledge and respect for the land and its peoples. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, share, and rate the program. This helps other listeners discover more about not only the work of this museum, but quite possibly other museums in their neighborhoods. The more you look, the more you find.